Each week, the Bible as Literature podcast brings you in-depth discussion of the biblical text in a format short enough for your morning commute, but long enough to be substantive, posing difficult questions meant to keep you engaged. If you value this work, please consider donating as little as 25 cents per episode. That's just $1 per month. To learn more, please visit patreon.com forward slash Bible. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash Bible. Thank you. Hi, this is Father Mark Poulos with the Bible as Literature podcast. Everyone's shit stinks. To your civilized ears, this sounds like a high-minded critique. It's not. It's just an observation about mammalian life. All animal life makes dung piles, yes. But eventually, the wind blows, rain falls, and our dung piles disappear. It may stink for a bit, but sooner or later it is gone, and the place thereof knows it no more. As all farmers know, our dung fertilizes the ground as God intended, and something beautiful grows in its place. For example, the lilies of the field in Matthew's Gospel. But in the storyline of Luke, the kingdoms of the world, cut from stone by Solomon's hand, are glorious upon the earth and impressive to your civilized eyes, but obnoxious in God's. Yes, everyone's shit does stink. But what really smells is the campaign to make something impressive out of your dung pile. To scale it. To build it up. To spread it around. To impose it on others. Such is the plague of Alexander the Great, Julius Caesar, and their colonial heirs who love making something out of nothing and saying, Look what I built! Richard and I discuss the Gospel of Luke, chapter 4, verses 5 to 8. You're listening to the Bible as literature. Hi, this is Father Mark Bulos. And this is Dr. Richard Benton. And you are listening to episode 492 of the Bible as Literature podcast. All along, Luke has been dismantling the temple in the mind of his addressees. And we are rolling along with the text, following Jesus in the wilderness in his confrontation with the devil who is trying to reconstruct the temple. We are in this run-up, this last-ditch attempt in the text, in the storyline, to rebuild, reconstruct the temple, to get Jesus to go back to the temple, reassert the temple in the story, in the mind of the reader. And that's where we begin now in verse 5 of chapter 4. And he led him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. I think of two texts when I hear this expression, in a moment of time. The word in Greek is stigmi, 
It's a point in time, but it's all of the kingdoms, meaning we're talking about something that is post-apocalyptic. So I think of the prophet Daniel, the book of Daniel, which is looking at the vanity of all the kingdoms of the earth outside of history from the end of time. I also think of Paul's letter to the Corinthians, which puts all things under the feet of Jesus Christ, trampling down death by death, meaning that everything that human beings make, everything that they produce, everything that they build, everything that comes from us is vanity. And all of it passes away. All of it is trampled underfoot by the Son of Man, the Lord's anointed, in the proclamation of the teaching of the resurrection. And here, in true form, the devil is trying to undermine that teaching by presenting to Jesus the very thing that Elohim has assigned Jesus in the New Testament to trample down underfoot all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. This is typical of apocalyptic literature in Daniel, outside of the Bible as well, that it understands that there is an arc of time, and you have kingdom after kingdom after kingdom after kingdom, and then you have a final point where everything changes and then a new era comes upon humanity. And very often in apocalypticism, you have an angel then that shows the human being what's going to happen. And even the revelation in the New Testament, you see this apocalyptic point of view where you have an angel who's showing the person around about you know what's going to happen over the arc of history. And to be able to show all these kingdoms in a moment of time, this is what Jesus is able to see. Jesus is shown by the devil this arc of history. So this is similar, interestingly, to what an angel would do in apocalyptic literature, but here we have the devil doing it. This is not a neutral communication. You know, an angel would be bringing this information from God, because the angel is the messenger, and this information would have to come from God because it's on that level, so that's how it functions. But here the fact that it's the devil, which is the liar, the slanderer, he is the one who's showing this. So that's a twist on the typical format of apocalypticism. We are naturally wary as the hearer of this text of whenever the devil does anything. We know that he's the bad guy. He's got the black hat on. He's got the sinister mustache. We know he's the bad guy. So why is he showing this thing that normally an angel from God would do? This revelation to Jesus showing him this is something that's problematic. So it's setting up this typical apocalyptic trope as a problem, and ultimately here, it's a potential stumbling block, a scandalon for Jesus. And the devil said to him, I will give you all this domain and its glory, for it has been handed over to me, and I give it to whomever I wish. There are a couple of things happening in this verse. Again, a reference to Paul's first letter to the Corinthians. The devil is, on the one hand, playing the part of the anointed one, which is blasphemy. Nothing was handed over to the devil. It is the purview of God the Father to hand over the kingdom to whom he 
chooses. And the kingdom to which the Father refers is the kingdom of the heavens. It has nothing to do with all of this transient nonsense that men make with their own hands. So the devil has control in the end over nothing, because who cares? It's all passing away. At the same time, he is behaving like Caesar, as though he has power over something, as though he is enthroned in some way and has the power to hand something over to whomever he wishes, which is also blasphemy. He's not sitting on any throne. He can't do anything. He can't give anything away as he pleases. The only one who can do as he pleases is God the Father. And unfortunately, Richard, the English text, at least in the translation that I'm reading from the New American Standard Bible, says, as I wish, but the word is thelo. It's as I will, which is, of course, a very specific term. It's technical terminology, as in the will of a king or a judge. But we know, as always in Scripture, there is only one king and only one will that matters. So the devil here is committing a double blasphemy, first against God the Father, and second against God the Father, who is the only one who can assign his locum tenens, and it's not the Diavolos, it's the Ben-Adam, whom Luke has just named the Son of God in this long story of the genealogy that we just worked through. So it's quite a verse, and it talks about glory. This word we've said many times corresponds to the Hebrew word kabod, which means weightiness. So there's a tension here between this pile of rubble that the devil is bragging about and the unseen kingdom of the heavens, which in human eyes has no weight. But we know that for those who submit to the God of the heavens, it's the weightiest thing on the scene. The power that the devil has is the exousia, the authority that he has. So I don't think it would be too far of a stretch to say that, yeah, probably the devil is incarnate in these various rulers we have in Herod and all these disappointments that we saw generation after generation in the genealogy. Yes, that is the devil's work. But the exousia, that is maybe a stretch. If he is given this authority, as you said, Father, it's not his then to give over. This is like when we talk about the inheritance of the land that Father Paul talks about all the time. Just because you're given the land to use and you're given the authority over the land, it doesn't mean the land belongs to you. The land still belongs to the owner of the land. You're just allowed to use it. But then once you die, you don't decide who it goes to. As a matter of fact, even before you die, Elohim might say, you know what? I'm going to give the land to somebody else. Never mind. Okay, that can happen with the devil as well. So I think you're right, Father. I think the tricky thing about the devil is he always has a kernel of truth in order to lead you astray. Yes, he has the exousia to puppet master the kings of the earth, but... 
this power can always be taken away by God. This is what we saw with Satan and Job. God gave Satan the power to harm Job. But that was it. And he limited it. Satan and Job couldn't then do whatever he wanted. Ah, now I own Job, I can do whatever he wanted. No. God actually said, you can do this and no more. Very specific. The point is that the devil has a certain sway, a certain authority, but he says, all this power I will give to you because it was given over to me. Mm, That's a stretch. And to whomsoever I will give it, mm, probably a stretch. I don't think the authority to then pass along this to the next generation, to the next person, is given to him. Because if that's the case, it means he is truly the owner, and the devil is not the owner. The devil is given the exousia, but the exousia can be taken back. It is not the devil's decision to whom and when that exousia is passed along to the next person. This is why, Rich, and you've heard me for years in sermons and in Bible study at St. Elizabeth always make the literary play comparing the king to Satan, comparing those who try to assert earthly power with the devil. It's because of texts like this that make it so clear. He is playing literally the role of Caesar here. There's a comparison being made because in 1 Corinthians, God the Father hands all of it over to Jesus because Jesus was cast aside and denied the throne. And here, Satan, who asserts the throne, is trying to deceive Jesus by offering him the throne. So it's all about denying what Satan is offering. So Satan is playing the part of Caesar, the one who amasses power on the throne. That's why this next verse is so interesting. Therefore, if you worship before me, it shall be yours. This is exactly what Augustus does. Julius dies, Julius who declared himself one of the gods, and Augustus says, well, if Julius was my father, that makes me the son of God. And that's what it means to establish your dynasty. So worship me. That's the deception of the deceiver. And that's what Jesus rejects. And that's the same game of Saul and David and Solomon, which nobody wants to accept. But that's what scripture is telling you. And Jesus is the one who said, no, thank you. No, thank you. And Luke is trying to help his Gentilic audience learn how to say, no, thank you. So it comes back again to this tension in the storyline of the New Testament between Son of Man and Son of God. Yes, Jesus is the Son of God, but not because he rose to power, because he rejected power. People think that there are good countries and there are bad countries, there are good rulers and there's bad rulers. You know, I'm a little late to the game. I just saw Wakanda Forever yesterday. I was really disappointed because there it's very clear. They're trying to figure out who are the good rulers and who are the bad rulers and who are the good countries and who are the bad countries. It's tiring to me because there is no difference. 
that's very difficult because people want to say our country is better or that country is better. They want to be able to hierarchize which country is good and which country is bad, which one is more evil, which one is less evil. This is the fool's errand that people are on. So when you say that the devil has a hand in all the countries, in all the lands, in all the kingdoms of the world, you want to say not mine. We're doing the best we can over here. It's not true. I mean, when I read Things Fall Apart, it was amazing to see that, you know, he didn't shy away from imagining the violence that was happening in this village before the colonizers came and brought their own form of violence. You can't say that there is a time or a place where the devil is not playing his hand. So then when it says, if you therefore will worship me, all of it will be yours. This is why I cannot see patriotism and faithfulness to Scripture as compatible. People want to live in a Christian nation. The United States is a Christian country, is a Christian nation. You cannot say that. Because the devil is as much a part of this kingdom of the world as whichever bad one you want to come up with, whether it's Iran or Israel, or Russia, or Ukraine, or whichever one you want to say is the evil one, or whatever one you want to say is the good one, all of them, even the fictional ones, even Wakanda. This is the kernel of truth that Luke conveys. And bowing down before the devil is recognizing his power and saying, okay, I'm ready to serve that power. And this is exactly what the church does when it wants to gain power in a country. The church does this. The church institution does this. The functionaries of the church institution, they bow down to the country so that they can survive. You saw it happen in Soviet Russia as well. I mean, it is a painful truth that Luke is conveying, that you have to choose you either get the authority in the country or you reject that authority. That's it. Those are the only two choices. And if you accept it, you're recognizing the devil as the power that you want to bow down before. A painful lesson from this that Jesus has to confront. It, there's truth to this. If you want worldly exousia, you must bow down before the devil. That's why your colonial hand is slapped when Satan says to you, here, take this. Jesus answered him, it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. To worship the Lord your God and to serve him only stops you in your tracks. I love this expression of St. Paul, stay as you are. If God is your only king, your only reference, if you are without a flag, so to speak, just dovetailing on your comments, Richard, whatever situation you find yourself in, you have no agency except to submit to the instruction to worship Yahweh, who is functionally your Elohim, and to be his 
slave alone. Meaning to hear his instruction and to obey it, which disallows you to export your cruelty, which is what colonialism is. You export your cruelty. You expand and you scale and you grow your nonsense in order to increase your glory, which is what the devil is proposing to Jesus in this passage. You see the problem with contemporary woke ideology is it makes out of one side the victim and one side the hero. Scripture is not presenting victims and champions. It's saying that everybody is under judgment. Everybody is wrong. There is only one God. So, yes, the colonials are the plague, without a doubt. But in Scripture, the way that the nomadic peoples emasculate the colonial Greeks is by emasculating themselves. That is why this whole movement of presentism and wokeism is a colossal disaster. Because it's absurd to say that you're virtuous. It will never work because you're not virtuous. Even a six-year-old knows that that's a lie. So your best hope is to pay closer attention to what the prophets are saying. Your best hope is to read Leviticus and Deuteronomy and First and Second Samuel and to hear Luke and to laugh at the stupidity of David and Solomon. To laugh, not cry. Pick up a sense of humor and then laugh at yourself and then let God dismantle the bloody colonials while he dismantles you and be set free with Paul, then it will work. Otherwise, you end up being the slave of the devil in Luke chapter 4. Refuse the throne, brothers and sisters. Yeah, this is always the trick of the empire to trick you into thinking that when you're worshiping the empire, you're worshiping God. When you're worshiping God, you're worshiping the good empire, the virtuous empire, because it only wants good for the world. It's going to bring peace to the world, and therefore it is doing God's will on earth. That's always how empires function, always. Whether the God is the Lord or whether it's Marduk with the Babylonians, doesn't matter. That's what you do, is you're doing this for the glory of God. The devil here is offering Jesus in the glory of God. And how do you get the glory of God? You bow down and worship Satan. That's how you get it, just the same way that Adam tried to do it. <laughs> Didn't work out well for him either. The glory that he offers is the issue because I am an American. I want America to triumph. I want America to stay safe. I want American democracy to spread. I want capitalism to spread. I want American ideals, whatever it is. You have to come into league with Satan. And this verse comes from Deuteronomy 6.13, a little bit worded differently. But in 6.13, if you keep reading, it says, glue to him, meaning God. You have to adhere to God when you serve him. You cannot let something get between you and God. 
And that's your vote. That's your president. That's your center. It doesn't matter. Your king, your leader, your autocrat, it doesn't matter. You can't let the person get in between. The devil makes as stark a contrast as you could possibly want. The devil makes the contrast clear. It's either God or the glory of the kingdoms of the world. One or the other. Not one of the kingdoms of the world over and against the other kingdoms of the world. No, there is no distinction here. The devil doesn't distinguish among them. Interestingly, you might distinguish between the good country and the bad country, the good ruler and the bad ruler. But the devil certainly sees them all the same. You may not accept the glory that's delivered to Satan or the exousia, the authority that's delivered to him. It's either the glory and exousia of the kingdoms of the world or worship and service to God. Vote with fear and trembling because you're already on thin ice hoping that your party wins over the other party. This is dangerous. Jeffersonian democracy is great for creating earthly stability, but ultimately Jefferson wanted a long-lasting kingdom. That's ultimately what he wanted. And, you know, so far so good from Jeffersonian terms. But from God's terms, you cannot be in league with him. That exousia does not belong to him. You can't love one president and then hate the other president. You love neither of them, but you obey both of them because the exousia was given by God to them to control things for a while. So adhere to God as you worship and serve him. Thanks very much, Dr. Benton. Thank you, Father. You've just heard the Bible as literature. Thanks for listening. The Bible as Literature is a production of the Ephesus School Network.